the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. Okay, for those of you who haven't heard the show before, the show is in two parts, not equal parts. But the first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. And as far as elder law is concerned, we want to try to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, every couple of months, we usually have a seminar. We're not doing a seminar for July, but if we, we are going to start up again in August, September, October. So if you check on our website, you can see the, the schedule of seminars. And we do not charge for the seminars. The seating is free. Sometimes we'd like to know if you are going to attend to give us a call at uh, 718-238-6500. And again, some of you, again, listening to the show for the first time. My name, again, is Mike Connors. I'm an attorney. I've been practicing estate planning, elder law, estate administration for the last 38 years. And we have offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and Manhattan. And if you have any questions about those areas of law, somebody left you money in a will, you want to do a will, you want to save your assets from a nursing home, you want to avoid probate, maybe you don't know what probate is, believe me, you probably want to avoid it, give us a call at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. In the meanwhile, we're we're going to be taking a couple of... uh, uh, calls from, oh, I shouldn't say calls, emails. And Beth, what's your first email? Okay, this is from Ronald. If I got really sick and needed to get Medicaid and pay for my, to pay for my nursing home, why couldn't I just deed my house to my son and transfer my bank accounts to him? This way, I won't have any assets in my name and they won't be able to take anything. I trust my son to take care of me. Okay, well, you know, there are a couple of problems with that. One, let's say your house. Like most people in New York, let's say you paid $50,000 for your house 30 years ago and it's worth a million dollars today. If Ronald doesn't live in the house, well, then Ronald's going to pay capital gains taxes on the difference between what you paid for it, let's say $50,000. What he sells it for, let's say $950,000, would be his gain. Well, guess what? That's $350,000 he's got to pay in income taxes, combination of federal, state, and city. And it's not likely your nursing home stay is going to cost more than $350,000. So right away, you're probably at the losing part of the game. Number two, 
most states, including New York, has what we call a five-year look-back period. If you apply for medical assistance Medicaid to pay for a nursing home bill, you have to document all your transactions for five years prior to your application for benefits. A deed whose name is on your deed can be very easily traced. Anybody who works for the IRS, New York City Department of Social Services, whatever, can go on a computer system in the city of New York and see every real estate transaction involved in your name for the last 50 years. So the social worker in charge of your file can plug in your name, see that your son deeded, you deeded your house over to your son, whatever, a few months ago, and they will deny your application for Medicaid, which means they won't pay your nursing home bill, and either the nursing home, Medicaid, or both will sue your son. And it's easily traceable. And the same thing with bank accounts. If you have money in a bank, they know, because if it's credited to your Social Security number, they know you have that money in the bank. When it comes out of the bank, they can be able to trace it. Where did that money go? And again, they're going to sue Medicaid or the nursing home or both. is going to sue you, your son, maybe put a lien on your house, that house. Not what you want to do. You want to get your plan in good shape that will either minimize the amount you pay to a nursing home because the thing is that would cause a full five-year penalty to be disastrous for your son as far as capital gains taxes. An exception to that rule, if your son were disabled, you could transfer the assets to him. Again, we'd like to do it in trust so it goes out tax-free. If your son is disabled, you protect those assets from nursing home bills right away. If your son lives in the house, the house can be protected. If he's lived there for more than two years, the house can be protected from medical bills, nursing home bills immediately. So if you're in one of these crisis situations, you need to get the right advice. And if you want to give us a call at Connors & Sullivan, you're, you're more than free to do so. But don't just give away your assets. And I'm not even talking about all the things, bad things that can happen because you give your house to your son. One, if your son's married, he dies before you. His daughter-in-law would inherit most of his assets, and that may not be exactly what you want. You may want to prefer to go to your grandchildren or somebody else, not your daughter-in-law. So you got to be careful. You give all your assets to your son. Your son dies before you. He's married. You just made a major gift to your daughter-in-law. So be careful. Do Just do not make gifts, especially if your house, to, to, to anybody, including your son. Put it in a trust. He'll get it the day after you're gone, and we can start the five-year clock for a nursing home bill. So if you're in one of these crisis situations, get the right advice. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough is one of the questions we have, and he asked the question on his show, which airs from Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock at 9.70, The Answer. Each Thursday at about 5.15, he answers a question, or he I shouldn't say he answers a question, he asks a question sent to his listeners. And here's Kevin McCullough. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every single week, we promise you that uh, Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan will be here to answer one of your questions about estate care or elder law, and here he is once again. Mike, this week's question is from Deborah. She says, my son recently remarried, and his wife is very manipulative, and a big spender. How do I stop my son from using a power of attorney I already gave him? Sounds kind of sticky, Mike. Well, it is sticky, but the answer is easy. You revoke the power of attorney and put it and give it the revocation, copy of the revocation to whatever bank you're doing business with, and you can file one with the county clerk. Of course, the sticky part is the political part of it. How do you tell your son, you know, he's fired? And of course, are there any other children involved and the family politics involved? But the answer is simple. You revoke the power of attorney and you give notice of anybody he may use the power of attorney with that uh, he's no longer your power of attorney. Uh, and that's just a simple uh, document that uh, you do? It, it, 
It's a half a page document, notarized, and that's it. All right. Uh, friends, easy uh, questions are sometimes easy to answer, but you'll never get the answers if you don't ask them. So send Mike Connors your questions, Connors at gmail.com, Connors at gmail.com, or call the office at 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And don't forget to be listening to Ask the Lawyer, where he answers even more of your questions. Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock on AM 570, The Mission, and Saturday evenings at 6 on AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Again, you can hear Kevin McCullough each Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock. Wednesdays, he's with John Katsimatidis. And, you know, if you want the latest news at the time that's coming up, Kevin McCullough, Monday through Fridays at 5 o'clock. Now, Beth, I think you have another question out there, don't you? I do indeed. My two siblings and I are the executors for my aunt's will. My sister and I don't want to serve. However, we don't want to give up our commissions. My brother has agreed to be the sole executor. If he serves alone as executor, can he still give us our commissions? This is from Janet. Okay, well, there are a couple of unanswered questions. Is your brother the alternate executor? If he is the alternate executor, yes, he could serve as executor, and then the divi- the commissions could be divided however the family wants to divide the commissions. Now, if he's not the alternate executor, and it depends what other people in the will, for him to serve as executor, and technically it wouldn't be executor if he wasn't named as executor, it would be administrator. But if he were the administrator of the estate, everybody who's named in the will would have to consent to his being named the basically the fiduciary, you know, of the estate. I mean, one of the things you could do, depending on now, who's Mike, she's um, Janet saying that her she and her two siblings are yeah. the executors on the will. Okay, I'm sorry, I misunderstood that. Yeah, they they could resign, but why resign? Then just let the one one child do most of the work, serve as executors this way in case something happens to the brother who's going to serve. The other two are still in place, and you keep control of the situation. But yes, they could do that. One does the work, and they divide the commissions however they think is fair. And commissions are set by statute, so the remaining beneficiaries wouldn't have too much of a complaint. They could resign, yes. I wouldn't resign. Stay in place, and then if he's the third you know, if he's the third executor, so forth, he can do most of the work and they can divide the commissions however they think is fair. Okay. Okay, we're ready to take a short break. After the break, we're going to be talking to Alexis Welkenstein about Bishop Sheen. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, 
If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, a few months ago, we were talking about the Sheen Center in New York, the Sheen Center for Thought and Culture and what events they had. But you know, there was a person named Sheen, Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. And right now we have Alexis Wallenstein, who's written a book about the bishop. How are you doing today? Hi, how are you, Mike? Good to, good to be with you. I'm fine. So obviously we know what your book is about, but who was who Fulton Sheen? <laughs> Fulton Sheen was one of the most prolific um most profound bishops to influence Catholic Church in the United States. Um, he had a award-winning radio show. He was an Emmy award-winning bishop um, who broadcast in the blossoming era of radio and television in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. He had a weekly television show called Life is Worth Living that attracted thousands of people from all over the United States to tune in every Sunday night, not just Catholics, but Jews, um, Protestants, um, the unchurched, many people tuned in to listen to Fulton Sheen, um, who had a particular penchant for breaking open the meaning of life, um, of course, under Jesus Christ, but people who wanted to understand what it meant to have a life worth living tuned into Bishop Sheen. Okay, now obviously he was a great communicator, but what were his special abilities? Why was he so much better than so many other priests, bishops, clergy? I wouldn't that he was so much better. I think we get into trouble when we say that because every bishop um, has the charism, of a, a teaching charism. That is truly um, the apostolic call for, the, for those who are ordained and elevated to the rank of bishop. Um, but he had a particular ability um, for evangelization and to use the modern means of communication of the time to reach people that he wouldn't normally be able to reach. And he had the ability a special ability to really take lofty things, the things of heaven, and bring them into an understanding that um, every man could really um, comprehend the things that, that we can't see, the things um, that are hidden things, the divine things. Well, let's say for the sake of argument, if somebody today wanted to see some of Bishop Sheen's broadcast, how would they do that? A lot of his um, material is uh, been moved over to YouTube, so you can Google a lot of his old um, television broadcasts and radio programs. Um, there's a wonderful DVD series called um, Family Retreat with Fulton J. Sheen, which capture, captures about nine hours of some of the best of his teaching at the end of his life when he was ministering to priests and to young school children on various topics related to choices, the devil, the mass, uh, human sexuality, um, confession. It's really very profound. So there's a lot of content out there. And he also wrote over 70 books, which is what I compiled, my little book from many of his written works. A lot of people know him from TV, but they don't know that he was a master communicator in the, in the, um, in the written word as well. Can you give us an example what written article or, or 
written speech impresses you the most that you'd like the public to get a, a handle on? Well, I think it depends on um, where you are, your state in life. For me, what caught my attention was the book Three to Get Married. Um, you know, I'm a, a kid from the John Paul II generation who um, mastered the theology of the body, which gives us an insight into human sexuality and love and marriage. But if you back it up to Fulton Sheen's era, he had this beautiful pastoral teaching on marriage. And I would say, you know, the majority of those of us of faith, we're going to take the marriage path. And Three to Get Married is a wonderful piece um, that helps us to understand the dignity of the sacrament of marriage. And really, you know, it clashes with today's event-centric, um, you know, marriage culture um, and puts it in proper perspective for the sacrament that it is. Also, Life of Christ is very profound. Fulton Sheen really unpacks um, who Jesus is in a technicolor way. Um, for us to better understand who Jesus is. So those are two of my favorites. Now, sometimes Bishop Sheen could be controversial. Some people, you know, his detractors would say he was too controversial for a churchman. Well, he, you know, yeah, I mean, you could say he wasn't necessarily politically correct. I mean, his mission was to preach the gospel in season and out of season, and he didn't mince words. And I, I think the same thing that may have detracted some people thinking he's too controversial is the same uh, level of power and grace that attracted so many people to the truth that he um, proclaimed, the truth of our faith. And, um, you know, we're seeing a generation of, of young people who really are, are thirsty for truth in a culture that spoon feeds us a lot of, a lot of negative, a lot of filth. Um, people are searching and truth is what really resonates. And I think that's what attracts people to Sheen even today. Do you have any comments on his battle for canonization? I shouldn't say his battle, but his supporters' battle for canonization. Well, I think what we're seeing right now is just the human the humanness of the church playing out in a little tug of war over his body. But it shouldn't detract from the very real position that he has in heaven and the, the efficacy that he has as an intercessor now. Um, I tell people, don't don't look at you know the, the details on you know, the little battle over his body and where his final resting place will be, even though there is great um, power in, in praying in proximity to a saint, a saint in the making. I mean, we, everything for us as Christians is about the body. You know, the Lord gave us Jesus who condescended to the earth and took on the body of a man to die for our sins. So, of course, the body matters, you know, but, but really Fulton Sheen is busy. Uh, as a saint in the making, he's venerable. On the way, the next step would be blessed. Um, I hope, really, that whatever's going on, 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 you know, between the two dioceses, the Archdiocese of New York and the Diocese of Peoria, will come to a quick resolve, because the quicker it does, the faster the, the beatification process will, will move forward, which will be wonderful for the Church. You know, some people may have no idea. What, what do you mean a tug of war over the body? What are you talking about? <laughs> Well, Fulton Sheen right now it resides, his, his place of burial is inside the crypt at St. Patrick's in New York. And um, the Diocese of Peoria, where Bishop Sheen is from, has, you know, has the request to bring his body home to where um, Fulton Sheen, you know, was born. But, you know, Bishop Sheen, it belongs to everybody. He belongs to the whole church. And so, of course, everybody wants a piece of him. You know, we see in church history, St. Catherine of Siena, one part of her body is in Rome and one part of her body is in Siena. Everybody wants access to the saints. So it's not a surprise, totally, that there's a little bit of a, a, little bit of a battle over the territory of where Fulton Sheen will, will remain. You know, Fulton Sheen is really known as a New York bishop. He didn't 
necessarily live out his ministry in Peoria, but he has deep history there. So, of course, with the cause being open, the cause for canonization um, being worked on and prayed for and um, opened in the Diocese of Peoria, and, of course, his body and his ministry and in some of his family in New York, and, of course, as a world-class city, a lot more access to Fulton Sheen there. There's there's a, there's a case for both, you know? So hopefully there will be a good result soon, and um, things will move forward. Do you have a preference? Well, it's interesting enough, if you read my book, Ex Libris Fulton J. Sheen by Pauline Media, in my introduction, I talk about the very profound experience that I had praying inside the crypt of St. Patrick's. And I encourage you to get the book because it details my story. And combined with that, right when I came out of the crypt, I prayed a particular prayer and told Fulton Sheen, you know, if you help me with my intentions, I'll promote you. And instantly I received an email from a priest that I never met before. And that priest was Monsignor Deptula, who's the executive director of the Sheen Foundation in Peoria. And he asked me, he said, you haven't met me before. I heard about you. I'm wondering if you would help us promote Fulton Sheen in South Florida, where you work for the diocese there. And so to me, it was a collision of both places. I was having this extraordinary moment of grace underneath, praying inside the crypt. And then Peoria was the responding, um, you know, diocese to that to that really um, profound prayer that I prayed. So for me, they both go in tandem. I wouldn't have had the experience that I had had I not had my little feet and my body <laughs> down inside the crypt. Um, but I would not have gone deeper into my relationship with Fulton Sheen without um, Monsignor Deptula and the Diocese of Peoria really shepherding that along for me. So I am really partial to both. And I, I um, you know, whatever the church decides, whatever God decides is the best place. Now, Alexis, tell us something about yourself. What started your journey to get interested in, in Bishop Sheen? Well, the first thing, I, you know, is working as a mainstream journalist in Boston, in the Boston TV market for the NBC station at the time. And I was, uh, I covered the church scandal extensively. I covered John Paul II's pontificate. And I was moving into a new, a new career um, as a diocesan communications director for a bishop in South Florida. And on the way to that assignment, I picked up the book Three to Get Married by Bishop Sheen. And I was very intrigued by the fact that a bishop could could teach about marriage and was teaching about marriage. And I didn't know what it would be like to work for a bishop. I knew what it was to be a Catholic, but I didn't know what it was like to combine just being a Catholic to working for the Catholic Church. So I began to just pray to him very casually. I, I didn't know he was on track for sainthood, but I knew he was a dead holy bishop. And so I figured he could help me. So I had these small little prayers here and there. And that culminated with a trip to New York City with the women in my family, and I talk about it in my book. Um, in New York City, we were there for the Rockettes and, you know, shopping and all the things you do in New York. And we visited St. Patrick's Cathedral for Mass, and that's when I knelt down behind the main altar and saw this engraved plaque that said, Prayer for the Canonization of Fulton J. Sheen. And I had no idea that he was on track for sainthood. I felt like I was super savvy uh, on church matters and news and information, being a journalist, but I was completely in the dark that he was on track for sainthood. And I, I felt like it was really a manifestation of all the prayers I had prayed that God was showing me. Fulton Sheen is not only praying for you, but he's going to be a saint. And, you know, there's no coincidence that you're here kneeling on this kneeler now. And that's when I realized, is he buried in the crypt? So I asked the security guard and then the sacristan to let us below. And after a little bit of a, <laughs> a convincing plea, 
they finally let us inside the crypt and my mom and my aunt and I prayed for it felt like an eternity and had these impossible intentions. And I just poured out my heart to Fulton Sheen, one intention at a time. There were five, three for other people, two for myself. And I just said, you know, if you help me with these intentions that are very stubborn, help me with Jesus, help Jesus to move for me. I will work for you. I will promote you. And I didn't really even know what that meant. But, you know, Fulton Sheen is so funny. That's what I've come to find out when you pray to him. He is just a hot ticket from the other side. And he, he quips back very quickly. I got that email from Monsignor Deptula, who, you know, right when I stepped out onto Fifth Ave and turned on my phone, I had this email from the, a priest I never met who said, you know, I heard about you. Could you help us promote Fulton Sheen's cause for canonization in South Florida? And at that moment, I knew two things. My prayers were getting answered one at a time. But first, Fulton Sheen was going to put me to work. And that's what happened. Last question. Why <laughs> why should the reader be interested in, in picking up a book about a dead bishop? And what do you hope the reader will take out of it? Dead bishop. He has the wisdom of the church. He has a, a gift for teaching. Um, I focus on three areas of Sheen's major thought. The fact that God is fire, human freedom, divine love, sin, and knowing Jesus. We are a culture that is starving for truth. We are a culture that has completely gone off its axis in so many areas, in our human relationships, in, um, in what we think is right and good, in our ability to wait and sacrifice. And Fulton Sheen helps the church live out its call, universal call to holiness. In whatever area we're called to live, whether it be married, priesthood, or religious, or single life, Fulton Sheen has the answers. And this isn't just a book for just Catholics. I wanted to approach this the same way Fulton Sheen approached the airwaves every week with really um, an examine and a look at what it means to have a life worth living, because God is on our side. We are his sons and daughters. He has created us, and we need to start living like we are part of the family of God. And so I hope that people will pick it up. It's an easy read. You can pick it up and read an excerpt, put it down, think about it. And um, it's, it's not too heavy, but it might very well cause you to go deeper. Very good. Ex Libris, Fulton J. Sheen. Alexis, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you so much for having me. God bless. God bless. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. 
All loans provided by Quantic Bank and MLS number 403503. Hi, this is Jean Potton of Catholic Charities Brooklyn, Queens, and a former player of the New York Islanders. I'm proud of my years playing hockey with the Islanders during the Cup years, and I'm also very proud of the work carried out every day by Catholic Charities, who is always there for children and youth, adults and seniors, veterans, mentally ill and homeless, with 160 programs and over 3,700 units of affordable housing. For more information, visit CCB. We are committed to changing lives and building communities. Mike Connors, host of Ask the Lawyer and published in New York Magazine's top-rated lawyers. Whether assisting a client with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, nursing home plan, or other matter, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of their clients' rights and interests. Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, has dedicated attorneys that can help you with estate planning, elder law, and probate. They listen to their clients to learn about their families, their financial picture, and their long-term goals to create a comprehensive plan to meet your objectives. They assist with the complex tax matters that are often involved in estate planning and probate. Contact Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, with offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Midtown Manhattan, and Staten Island to schedule a free consultation with an attorney. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And listen to Ask the Lawyer right here every Saturday evening at 6. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is Neil O'Dowd to talk about his book, Abraham Lincoln, The Irish and the Civil War. How are you doing today, Neil? I'm doing very good, Mike. Thank you. The, the point of the book, you know, the Irish in the Civil War, but more importantly, the Irish and their relationship with Abraham Lincoln. What is the book about? It's a book about hidden history. It's, it's a book about the fact that the background to the Civil War in terms of Irish people was it was the aftermath of the Irish famine. There were 20,000 Irish a month coming into America during the years of the Civil War. They formed about 20 percent of the Union Army. Uh, Lincoln obviously was not Irish himself, but when he, he was uh, in Springfield, he was surrounded by Irish people, most of them Democrats. A lot of his political opponents were Irish. But also in his own home, he had Irish nannies who looked after his kids. And his wife was known to dislike them but because they used to bring boyfriends in and stuff like that. But Lincoln had a great relationship with them. So it's just a personal aspect of Lincoln that hasn't been written about, but also a much broader aspect which I think is, is one of those that has not been covered enough in the Civil War, which is the role of immigrants in, in both armies, because there were Irish who fought in the South as well. Yeah, when you say 20% of the Union Army, where did you get that number from? That's basically from the Thomas Francis Marble by the um, uh, New York Times writer. Um, Timothy Egan. His name is me at the moment. Timothy Egan. He talked about Yeah, Timothy Egan, yeah. yes. At the beginning of the Civil War, Lincoln calls for volunteers. What's the reaction from the Irish? The reaction from the Irish originally is hostile because Lincoln Day associates with the Republican Party and the Know Nothings. And the interesting thing about the Republican Party, they were anti-slavery, but they were also anti-Irish. So it was a strange dichotomy. Uh, a lot of the Republican Party resented the Irish coming in. They were very poor. So they were, in many ways, immigrants who were aborted as far as the Republicans could see it. So they were suspicious. But uh, there was a wonderful car, uh, archbishop here in New York, Archbishop Hughes at the time, who was Irish-born, who saw what Lincoln was trying to do and who felt that if the Irish stood up and fought for the American flag, 
it would mean a tremendous amount in terms of how they were viewed by Americans because they were obsessed with how they were viewed like a lot of immigrants are. And so under the tutelage and under the support of, of Archbishop Hughes, uh, Irish began to sign up for the Union Army. And many of them signed up literally right off the boat. I think one of the things that some people sometimes forget or don't know about, the Irish Brigade at Antietam, at Fredericksburg, at Gettysburg, they were all volunteers. The draft hadn't started yet. They were all volunteers. And, well, the fact is that General Maher, who is probably the most famous Irishman in American history, um, wanted Irish soldiers to join the Union Army for two reasons. One, because he wanted them to be accepted as Americans. But two, that he saw a conflict looming after the Civil War, where he was a Fenian, a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, whose stated aim was to drive the British out of Ireland. And he wanted to get his men with experience in military affairs, sort of when they decided to try and remove Britain from Ireland, they would have military backgrounds. So it was an ambitious plan on two levels. after the war, the Irish Brigade actually, an Irish Brigade actually did invade Canada, not very successfully, which was a British uh, Dominion at the time. So there was two two levels of why the Irish joined: one, because they wanted to be seen as Americans, and two, because they felt the old enemy had to be fought, and it was great to get military experience by uh, joining the Union. What did Abraham Lincoln think? about the Irish immigrants? What was, what was his opinion of them? The remarkable thing about Abraham Lincoln is that he really liked them. Everybody around him, including his law partner, who said every Irish throat should be slit and you know killed, basically. Um, there was enormous anti-Irish sentiment because of the fact that they were arriving in in such numbers. But Lincoln, even in his private writing, had an extraordinary affection for them. And... Uh, a lot of it is traced to these women who took care of his kids who were Irish nannies. A lot of it is traced to his, his early law partners, uh, you know, very, very extreme view that, that Lincoln did not share. But I, I think in terms of as he went through life, <clears throat> he learned, for instance, uh, Robert Emmett's speech from the dock. That was one of his party pieces. Um, he issued a resolution in Congress calling for Ireland to be free. Um, he knew Francis Maher, he, he was a big fan of his, um, and he knew many of the leaders, John Corcoran, who was the other leader of the Irish, <clears throat> Irish Brigade, General Corcoran, Michael Corcoran. Um, so he was constantly mixing with them, and he knew that they would be very important in terms of making up the numbers in the American Civil War on the Union side. And in fact, there is one argument that could be made that when it came down to the war of attrition and it was a numbers game, it was the Irish who gave the uh, the Union the numerical superiority. The other thing about that is the, the Confederacy recognized that and sent a priest and a bishop to Ireland warning the Irish not to come to America, that they'd be sh- shanghaied off the boat and forced to fight for the Union because they feared the number of Irish would also tip the balance in favor of... Um, of, of the Union side. Now, there were a number, of course, the numbers weren't quite, uh, well, obviously weren't nearly as large, but there were a number of Confederate Irish regiments. Yes, there were. Um, I mean, again, the, the Irish who joined the Confederacy, many joined for a different reason, because they saw the Union Army as anti-Catholic. And there were a lot of very publicized incidents where Union soldiers went into Catholic churches 
and destroyed them. And those stories took on great strength in the South and uh, ensured that Irish people joined up on the on the uh, Confederate side. So there was a number of Irish regiments. They figured the number of Irish fighting on the Union side, on the Republican, uh, sorry, on the Confederate side was about 20,000. And what is your number on the Union side? Um, I, I, you know, obviously you're, you're always, there's a couple of leading historians who differ on this question. Some believe it's as high as 200,000, which would, would not surprise me at all. Um, when you look at the great battles, when you look at Gettysburg, when you see the number of Irish who took part in that battle, and you see the, the hugely important role of the Philadelphia or the Pennsylvania 69th, who were all Irish uh, on, after during Pickett's march, uh, there's no question that there was a huge amount of Irish in the Union Army. The exact numbers have never been properly identified, but historians put it around 200,000. How would you distinguish between, at that time, somebody, let's say, who was an Irish-American, you know, an American born of Irish parents, or an Irish person who was born on the other side? You couldn't really. You're absolutely right. But, you know, obviously 35,000 Irish died in the American Civil War, Irish-born. We know that for a fact, Um, which is a huge number, more than any Irish who died in any battle in Irish history, with the exception of World War I. So there were huge numbers of Irish who were from the old country who joined the army. But, you know, the Irish brigades were probably the best indicators. They mixed Irish-born and Irish-American uh, very successfully, as it turned out. And uh, so there were, but it is impossible to put an actual number of how many in, uh, were Irish-American as against Irish-born. The election of 1864. How are the Irish involved in the election, and how did they vote? Well, the interesting thing is the election of 1864 was when, again, uh, Archbishop Hughes played a huge role in securing a lot of the Irish vote in New York. The Irish, remember, were Democrats. The Irish were Democrats because they felt that the Republican Party, while it was anti-slavery, were also anti-Irish. And there's no doubt that the know-nothing sprung from the Republican Party and that there were a number of riots where in Louisville, for instance, up to 100 Irish were killed in a bloody riot uh, right after that election. So they were tended to be Democrats, but the major figures like Maher and Archbishop Hughes swung them back behind the Union Army in, in large numbers, the Union vote. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that they really did want to be seen as Americans. And Hughes, in fact, made a speech about how he wanted the Stars and Stripes to fly for a thousand years over St. Patrick's Cathedral. And he urged the people, uh, his parishioners, if they were going to join the army, to join the Union Army. I understand from Timothy Egan's book that General Marr campaigned for Lincoln in in that election. Yeah, Lincoln actually uh, met Marr several times in the White House and discussed the war with him and particularly the status of the Irish Brigade. There was a lot of um, tribulation within the ranks of the Brigade that they were being used as, as cannon fodder, that they were being put forward into the front ranks, and that they took the heaviest casualties almost uh, more than any other regiment, with the exception of one or two. So there was a lot of discussion about that, and, and there's no doubt that Maher discussed that with Lincoln. Um but, you know, Lincoln really admired Maher and what he had done in his story. So 
there's no question that there, there was contact between them at a significant level. Do you have any comment on General Marr and what happened to him after the war in 1867? I, I, I think it was a tragedy what happened to him. I mean, he ended up falling off a ferry boat in Montana, and nobody knows the exact reason if he was drunk or if he was pushed. Um, Timothy Egan's book deals with that very thoroughly. It doesn't come down on, on either side because there appears to be evidence that would satisfy both theories. But Maher was an inspirational figure for the Irish in America and remains to this day, to, you know, the great name in Irish America. Him, General Corcoran, who wouldn't bow to the British uh, prince when he came to New York, and, um, you know, Archbishop Hughes, they were the three great Irish leaders in New York at the time who secured Irish support for the Union in large numbers. But, you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, hidden history about the Irish in the Civil War, and I think the great story for me is the Pennsylvania Brigade, 69th, on the day of Pickett's March, when uh, two regiments on either side of them uh, basically ran away, and they stood their ground and defended against Pickett's March until reinforcements came. So... I think that's a heroic story that has never been told, which never been told enough in my book. Yeah, well, if you see the immortal movie Gettysburg, you see an Irish flag at the center of the line holding. So That's right, yeah. It's got a shamrock on it. Um, but, you know, they, they did hold, and they were very brave fighters, and they did become better Americans. They did become, they earned their citizenship by fighting for the Union, and uh, I think that was the ultimate outcome of the Civil War, that the Irish certainly didn't face the same kind of prejudice that they had before the war. And the other thing that was fascinating about researching is the number of Irish that Lincoln felt comfortable around in the White House. Uh, about nine of the, the people working for him, in fact, there was reference to the Hibernian cabal that Lincoln constantly hung out with. And they seemed to offer him some some life relief as well to, Doorman Ed, Ed McManus was allegedly the only one who could make him laugh. And um, so there was, you know, a warmth there between Lincoln and the Irish, which was quite unusual given the fact that the Republican Party was seen as the enemy. But if you talk to, if you listen to somebody or you read some of the testimony of the Irish people who worked for Lincoln, they absolutely adored him. They thought he was the most amazing guy. And uh, when you look at the night that Lincoln was assassinated um, as Charlie Forbes was was in the carriage, an Irish guy. The driver was Irish, and there was Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln and two others. That was the final journey. Now, the one thing we didn't talk about is the draft riots. Yes. Give us a, a, a synopsis of what happened, your, your appreciation of the events. I think it was the most disgraceful day in the history, or week in the history of the Irish in America, um, Obviously, there were reasons why they were rioting. Um, obviously, the governor of New York had promised that nobody would be drafted, that they had enough people to fill the ranks. And then suddenly they held the draft, and of course, most of the names out of the draft were Irish. So they became very angry about that, because again, that issue of being cannon fodder was very much on their minds, particularly after Gettysburg. So when the draft took place, uh, the Irish were disproportionately called upon. They began to object to that, and soon it became a street riot. And what they did was, uh, unfortunately, they burned a black orphanage 
and they killed a lot of people on the street. It was a mob that was out of control. So I'd have to say on, on their side was the fact that many of the cops and soldiers who stopped the riots were also Irish. And it was probably Archbishop Hughes, who was on his deathbed, who ensured that it finished when he called the leaders of the Irish community together and said this has to stop. But it's not a proud day in Irish history at all. Maybe we didn't talk enough about Archbishop Hughes. Who was he? He was an amazing, amazing man. Um, you know, he, he built up the Catholic Church in New York at a time when there was great hostility to it. He was a native of Ireland, and uh, at the age of 15, he was very radicalized by a single incident when he realized that his his sister, who had died, could not be buried in the graveyard because she was Catholic. And uh, he took that hatred of Britain with him to America as a result of that. Walked as a gardener in a seminary and then decided he'd go for the priesthood. An amazing rise. And then became the uh, the leader of the Catholics uh, in, in New York. Um, and had an incredibly tough job because at the time his people were under enormous fire. In fact, the Know Nothings attacked St. Patrick's, old St. Patrick's Cathedral with weapons at one point and were just driven away by an organization called the AOH, which is still very much in existence today. So he took over at a time when literally 20,000 a month were coming in through the, not all through New York, but a lot of them were. And these were people who needed enormous care and help. And he, he built an incredible system of schools, hospitals, churches. Uh, he he got vocations from nuns and priests. So he, he basically built what we now recognize as the Catholic Church in New York, a very, very powerful institution. And he was a very um, interesting man for any number of reasons, but mainly because, you know, unlike a lot of Irish priests and nuns at the time, he didn't consider the Union to be anti-Catholic, and he worked with them rather than against them, which was a very significant thing. Why was that? Why did he have a different perception? I, I think he understood that people like Lincoln and, and the Foreign Secretary, who he knew very well, Seward, were actually people who were trying to be, or, or trying to do the right thing. And uh, there's a lot of warm correspondence between him and Lincoln. And frankly, you know, he he knew that he had to save these people, and the only way he he could save these people was to work out a deal with the Republicans. Um, the other thing, the other question people ask a lot about is what was his view on slavery? But the fact is, he didn't view slavery as anything as important for him and his people who were desperately fighting for their own lives in New York at the time, who were under terrible attack by the Know Nothings. Um, so he didn't give the matter of slavery much thought, which I think is understandable in the context of what he had to do. It's probably not something with the eyes of history was the right thing to do. But his main issue was hundreds of thousands of, you know, Irish penniless, impecunious, uh, ill people coming in. So what is the one thing you want the reader to take out of your book? What do you want them to, to, to feel or understand after they're finished? That the role of the emigrant Irish has never been fully explored in the context of the American Civil War, that it was far more significant and important than has been given credit and that Lincoln was such a remarkable character that even though they were on opposite sides of the issue, he managed to reach out and become a beloved figure to the Irish, which was quite an extraordinary feat for him to do. The author is Neil O'Dowd. The name of the book, 
Lincoln and the Irish, the untold story of how the Irish helped Abraham Lincoln save the Union. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner, Neil. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718 238 6500 or visit their website connorsandsullivan.com Hi, this is Patrick Wayne. I had the good fortune to be raised by a man of strength and courage, a man of true grit. My father, John Wayne, died of stomach cancer in 1979 and in his characteristic style, he ignored advice to keep his disease quiet and campaigned publicly to encourage preventive treatments. He inspired our family to carry on that mission. And today, the John Wayne Cancer Institute at Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica, California, continues to take bold steps in cancer research. The John Wayne Cancer Institute has developed novel approaches to detect cancer, establishes therapies to boost the immune system to fight what my dad called the big C, and initiated less invasive surgeries. We've made significant advances in treating melanoma and breast cancer. All this has been made possible by my father's legacy of determination and a community of supporters who have helped expand upon that legacy. For more information, visit www.jwcigiving.org. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. You know, the Irish in the Civil War has always fascinated me, and why did those men fight? Thank you for Neil O'Dowd to, you know, for his contribution to the discussion. And I, I understand he may be speaking at the Civil War Roundtable next St. Patrick's Day, March 2019. Beth, Chris, you guys are more into this than I am. YouTube, what what is on our YouTube? Oh, Chris, help us out. <laughs> we have a lot of uh, Mike's classic interviews on the YouTube channel. Now, many people like to hear the whole show. They can go to askmikethelawyer.com, and we have a podcast page. We have all the podcasts from 2013, late 2013 on, since we've been with AM970, The Answer. You can also hear those podcasts on AM970, The Answer's website. Well, that's am970theanswer.com. 
You can find that on their podcast page. So those are easy to do. However, some say, hey, I love Mike's show, but I want to hear that interview again. But just the interview this time, or I missed the interview, I want to hear that. We have a YouTube channel. It's Connor's Corners Conversations, Ask the Lawyer, or it's Ask the Lawyer, Connor's Corners Conversations. Either way, you can search that on YouTube. You'll find the entire channel. We have classic interviews uh, like the ones with Jim Caviezel, uh, Jamie Farr. We have some of the uh, the best Ed Bars interviews. Where we, we're going to have the Ron Chernow interview, the live Ron Chernow Q&A from the Civil War Roundtable up as well pretty soon. So, yes. It's all going to be there, and you can hear the Jack Barsky interview, the, uh, the, the the spy. You can hear a lot of really interesting stuff, but it's Ask the Lawyer, Connor's Corner Conversations on YouTube. Easy to find. Subscribe to it. So when we put a video up there, you'll be notified that we have a new one up there. Okay, so again, you, you get into YouTube, and what do you type in? Ask the Lawyer, Connor's Corner's Conversations. I just type in Connor's Corner because that's how I get there. Okay, well, let me ask you how, something. How do you subscribe? There's a red bar, a red button under each video that says subscribe. If you haven't already done that, click on it and you'll subscribe. Mike, I don't think I've even subscribed yet. <gasps> I, go, I know. I know. I don't I have. know how to do this. How many, interview, how many interviews do we have up there? <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many. I just have a, we have a lot. We do have Don Murray up there. We have Orson Bean. We have a couple of, uh, we, have some, we have a Ralph Peters interview up there. We, we have uh, a bunch of them. I just don't have the number in front of me. Okay. But again, if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, give us a call at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. We have offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, Staten Island. We don't charge for the initial consultation. The first consultation is free, so don't be afraid to give us a call. I guess right now, David Kincaid is telling us to go home. Bye-bye, everybody. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. protect my family if something happens to me. What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings? Our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.